Martin von Hildebrand has spent the last five decades accompanying indigenous communities in the Colombian Amazon. During this time, he obtained the recognition of their rights in the national constitution, including the collective ownership of their land and the development of their governments. Currently, Martin, along with NGOs, indigenous organizations, governments, and private enterprises, is coordinating the protection of the largest stretch of rainforest on the planet. He is an ethnologist with a doctorate from the University of Paris, founder and the current president of the Gaia Amazonas Foundation. He's been awarded a dozen international awards, such as the Wright Livelihood Award, the Golden Arc Award, and the Columbia National Environmental Award. Martin von Hildebrand, welcome to the One Planet podcast. And so Thank you. you. <laughs> and so you are uh, ethnologist, anthropologist, and you really have this t immersive approach uh, that you have spent over, you know, uh, 50 years focusing on the Amazon and indigenous people. Just tell us a little bit about your beginnings and your journey. Thank you very much, Mia. Yes, uh, I'm an anthropologist. I actually studied, I got my doctorate in, in Paris, Paris it. And um, my father's German, my mother's Irish, and they had to leave Europe in 1940 because my grandfather and father took an open stand against the Nazi regime. And when, uh, the, when, the, when the Nazis moved into Paris, they had to get out and they came to the United States. Uh, I was born in the United States. And in, uh, when I was six years old in 1949, my parents were invited to Columbia Study University. After doing my school here, I went to Ireland and there I studied anthropology, uh, sociology and archaeology. And then I came back to the rainforest. And when in, I was 28 in 1972, I decided to go into the rainforest. And I had met a, a very eminent professor in anthropology, Reichel Dolmatov and his wife Alicia, both anthropologists and they became my mentors. And so I went into the forest. Actually, later on, I married their daughter, Elizabeth, and I have three sons, Antonio, Francisco, and Gregorio, all involved one way or another with the rainforest. Anyway, so I went into the forest back in 1972 for the first time. And um, what took me there? I was interested in indigenous people, I was. I had not done my doctorate in anthropology yet. I did a bit later in Paris. But there was the adventure. There was the forest. There was going in. And so I went to this small town on the border between Colombia and, uh, and Brazil. I'll show you later on the map. And I went there and I got a canoe and I started rowing into the forest. And I went rowing for six months on my own. And uh, it was fantastic because in this part of the rainforest, in the Colombian forest, well, there are absolutely no roads. There's absolutely no towns, no electricity, no flowing water. I mean, you are with the indigenous group. They're all still in their lowing clothes. They speak different languages. I went through many, I went through about eight different ethnic groups. They all spoke different languages. Uh, I couldn't understand what they said. They couldn't understand what I said, but we got along well. So I went rowing for six months and it was absolutely like going back into the 17th century. It was fantastic. I mean, you move out of the Western world. You're, you're months away. If you drown in the river or disappear, you disappear. Nobody knows where you are. There's no communication whatsoever. 
and it is a fantastic feeling. Uh, the only thing I missed was somebody with me, of my, a friend, culture, something like that, to share the emotions of the things you saw, just to, to look at this marvelous thing together, this marvelous people, landscape, world. And when I was going, when, after three months, I arrived at a place that suddenly there were no Indians there. There were no, there was just old people in the, in the communal houses, these big communal houses. And I asked where the people, and they said they're at the camp. And I said, what camp? And they said, the rubber camp. And I went in there and I visited them in the rubber camp and they were basically slaves. They were in debt. They had been in debt for generations, working for the rubber barons or merchants. And the children were all taken by force to the missionary schools and basically taught not to be Indians. They called that civilizing the indigenous people. And of course, Christianizing the indigenous people. And so everything was wrong. Their culture was wrong, the language was wrong, the ancestors were wrong, the beliefs were wrong, the food was wrong, their getting up in the morning was wrong. Because the Indians get up at three o'clock or four o'clock in the morning, no, you get up at six. And, uh, and uh, the whole, everything was wrong. And this was, they, they were very treated cruelly. I mean, they were punished if they didn't listen, if they didn't learn quickly. Um, the missionaries, when I met them later, I mean, I met them since then, they said, these Indians are so stupid, they can't even speak Spanish. And I said, well, the French can't speak Spanish and the English can't speak Spanish. Does, does that mean they're stupid? Um, but anyway, they had this attitude. And so I saw this and I was shocked. And I was shocked and I said, I'll hang around for two years to see if I can give you a hand. The fact that those two years turned into 50. And uh, so I started giving them a hand. I went, I went back to, to Bogota uh, and, and a few, uh, two months later, I came back in. And like that, I started coming in and out, staying with them three months, four months, and then going back to Bogota and then coming in again. And uh, what we started was basically uh, uh, talking about, I, I mean, obviously they had no rights recognized at all. And uh, we started talking about that. And we started talking about education. And we started talking about this, how they're being in debt. And they want to change the situation, but they didn't know how to approach it. They had tried with the shamanistic approach to, to, to put spells on the white people, on the priests and all that. But they said it's very difficult because you come from a different culture. Your spirit is different. We can't really grasp it. We, you don't belong to the forest. You, when we try and grasp your spirit, we see it coming and suddenly it turns into a flame. It's fire and then it disappears again been very difficult. And they did try killing them. Uh, there were some of them that were killed in the past, but then they had a lot of white people coming in with guns and killing the Indians. So they didn't want to start a war. And so it was difficult. So we started discussing about these things. And I said, well, I think the first thing is that you have to get uh, your land recognized. This land belongs to you and we have to get this recognized. And they said, what are you talking about, Martin? The land doesn't belong to us. The land belongs to the birds, the land belongs to the trees, the land belongs to the animals, we belong to the land. Nobody can say that the land belongs to them. We are children of the land. I said, yet yeah, the white people think in a different way. And if you don't have a little piece of paper saying this is yours, they might come and take over. They didn't believe me. They thought it was absurd. But after meditating and going through several meetings, several months, which I insisted, they said, okay, Martin, since you're white and you said this is true, you go and get that piece of paper. 
And so I said, well, I won't go for a small piece of land. I'll go for 20 million hectares. That is uh, the size of the United Kingdom. Not of England, but the United Kingdom. And um, so I went and I started pushing this. I got some people to come in from government to look into this. I was funded as a, I had a contract with the Institute of Anthropology to do research, which I did, of course, but I was getting involved in this political angle or this. And um, actually then at that stage, I asked for the Colombian nationality because since I was getting involved politically, I could not do it as a foreigner. So I took on the Colombian nationality and I lost the American, but I was interested in this process. And I had the European, so it was not a problem for me. But uh, we got the studies done for the land. And then we started, we set up small shops with the indigenous people, run by the headman, where they could buy with rubber. They bring in rubber, they, 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 they buy whatever they needed, a, a machete, a hammock, a fishing hooks, nylon, flashlights, whatever it was. And then we take the rubber down to Brazil, we exchange it for the same things, and we come back to the shops. So they start becoming independent. And we started looking at the possibilities of local schools run by them also. And uh, I was getting fund some money for this from the Colombian government. We worked along this, and uh, I stayed until 1979 there. Then I went to France, I did my doctorate, and I came back. And when I came back in the 80s, I got involved in government. I got involved first in the Ministry of Education in setting up the program of what we called ethno-education or intercultural education based on their languages. I had a lot of experience. I had lived about eight years with them. I understood their way of life, their way of thinking. And particularly, I dare say that when they sent me or they told me, Martin, you go and get that piece of paper and you go and talk with the government about the situation, I would say, and that's what they did, that they gave me a particular energy because they, they use the word curar, they healed me, they put uh, shamanistic energy so my word would be sweet. Para que la palabra sea dulce. So that people would listen to me. And so I, it's extraordinary because in my life the doors have opened. But other people knocked and the door didn't open, I knocked and the door did open. And so I cannot take the credit for that. I think it was the shamanistic support, spiritual support, or whatever we might call it, uh, that uh, gave me that extra energy or that extra space. And, and so I went first and I got involved in this. Then I, a guy had been president and he was going a second time for that. He asked me to support him. I said, I can support you, but I mean, I'm not going to get involved with, with politics in that sense. But I gave him the idea of signing papers to get the land recognized, the first four and a half million hectares recognized, and we got that done. He said, I said, we have to get a letter to the ministry because they, they didn't want to give the land to the Indians, uh, the government. But since he was an important man and had been president, he wrote a letter, or I wrote a letter, he signed it, we took it to the ministry and got the first four and a half million, and that was in 1981. And then uh, the next, and. Uh, but that president didn't get become president. But four years later, uh, another president from the Liberal Party, Virgilio uh, Barco, and he invited me to run Indian Affairs. And uh, just to tell an anecdote, uh, one day he phones me up because he's writing an article. I go over. I didn't know him. I go to the presidential uh, uh, office. We start chatting. I tell him about the Indians. And from then on, he phoned me at least once a week because with you, it's a break. 
I say, I have a bit of free time. I mean, I, we have all the Palmas Escobar and the narco and all these problems in Colombia. And I can say, we're well, going to talk about Indians, talk about the environment. And I told them stories. I just told them stories, stories about the Indians, myths. And so he'd invite me over and say, Martin, come over and tell me stories, basically. And as I told them stories, okay, Martin, let's get this done. So how much land do we have to give to the Indians so they can really live there? And I started, okay, we'll start with 6 million hectares, then another 6 million hectares. And eventually, by the end of his government, we had 20 million hectares. What have some of the changes have been? When I started, of course, they didn't understand. I mean, it made no sense. Both when we said we own the land and they have to get the land recognized. And even when we got the land recognized, they well, life continued because basically they belong to the land. They hunt, they fish, they live there. And mainly the fact that when we say that the land, when we recognize all this land, these are 26 million hectares we have here altogether nowadays in Colombia. Um, we are really, it is something for the white, for the white, for us, for the national uh, society, and for us to understand that basically when we say the land belongs to them, we are saying we cannot go in there without their permission. Basically, well, we're opening a space for them to be themselves, to develop their culture on their own terms, to relate to us on their own terms. That is the essence of this. So there were three fundamental aspects that I started thinking and working on from the beginning as I traveled through this and as I thought about this. And I spoke with some friends of mine, particularly a lawyer called Roque Roldan, where there were three fundamental points. The Indians must own their land, one, the rights must be recognized in a strong way and a solid way that is in the constitution if possible. And they have to set up their own local governments to deal with the outside world on their terms. These were the three fundamental aspects that I was aiming at. So first we got this land and it doesn't really matter if they could see an immediate difference in the sense that, I mean, obviously it's not something you can see, but suddenly, they were the boss. Boss is a way of putting it. But they could tell the priest, look, stop, hold your horses. They could tell the, the merchants come in and say, wait a moment, you can't just walk in here and do whatever you want. They owned it. And this, of course, was known by all the other outside people. Because here, there are, in this whole area, there are no other Colombians. There are only just indigenous people. Here we have 50 different ethnic groups in all this area. And the green ones are national parks, which we also pushed. And the government puts these green ones are national parks. Nowadays, there are about 10, 9 million hectares in national parks. All this is protected now and it's all out of the market, all this territory. And we only have colonization here at the foot of the mountain, which of course is not fair, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And we are looking into that also. But this land in Colombia, so we have practically uh, over 60%, 65% of the Amazon under protection in Colombia. Now, what we achieved here, and by the end of, of uh, coming into 1990, I was also appointed by the government to negotiate a national labor organization in Geneva. Uh, they were discussing the rights of indigenous people, an international agreement among all the countries of international agreement. And we, I could play a major role, not only because I lived with the Indians and therefore I had an understanding of these people and I knew what they thought and where they wanted to go, I had also been discussing this, obviously, with colleagues in not only in Colombia, in different parts of Latin America, particularly. And I had absolute support of the president of Colombia, so I could push very hard in this. And so we managed to come out with the ILO 169 agreement. And once their rights were there, 
the next following year, I was still in government, the Colombian constitution came through and we managed to get all their rights in the constitution. So we had achieved the first two points, they had the land and their rights were fully recognized at a high level in the constitution and they were pretty good. I mean, when I'm talking about their rights, their rights to the land, their rights to self-government, their rights to self-education, their right to their language, their right to the culture, their cultures were official in Colombia and are official wherever they are lived. Their languages are official in Colombia, wherever they are spoken. Uh, that means that they, if they're judged by law, they, 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 they should be in their, in their language. They have a right to serve their own justice, uh, obviously their own economy, education and health, but they also have the right to fully participate in the Colombian, as any other Colombian in the, in the, in the Colombian system. So it allows them to have a particular, a special, uh, 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 system, legal system for them to maintain their culture. Now, this, of course, is very important because it's the main change. Because up until then, because of the pressure of the rubber business, which had gone already for practically 100 years and they were slaves and they were exploited by the Casa Arana, it's a famous story for those who, under, who know the region and know what happened because the English were involved in there. And it was, I'm not going to go into that story right now. And uh, of course, with the missionaries that were trying to civilize them, and it, I can't blame the missionaries in the sense that, I mean, it was terrible, and it was the way it was done was terrible, but of course, they had a contract with the government to do that, because the government thought that all the Indians should become like the rest of the country, speaking Spanish and being Christians. Whereas, with this constitution, now we fully recognize the cultural diversity, and that Colombia became a multi-ethnic country, and not a Catholic country, <coughs> and just a monolingual Spanish country. That's the big step. So that much was achieved. And then I set up a foundation called the Gaia Amazonas Foundation. I'll give you the reference later, which still exists. And it's still going very strong. And it's now run by my son, because at the age of 70, I said, OK, I've, I've done, I've worked for uh, enough going into the West and going to the forest, but getting money and writing reports and all that. And my son has taken over, who was brought up in the foundation and in the forest. and. Um, and with the foundation, the idea was to go accompany the indigenous people to set up their governments. For that, I started a program called Koama, inviting all the other NGOs in the area. There were other four NGOs that we worked together in that sense, and that I would go and get the funding for all of them for the next 10 years. And we got the funding from the European Union to begin with, and then particularly from Austria, I went for Denmark uh, for many years. Actually, the, 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 the European Union supported the Commission. The European Commission supported us for 20 years without knowing it. Every, every three years we had to renew, but it ended up being 20. Anyway, in this process of what we did was support them to set up within this region their different governments and set up platforms for them to dialogue with the, with the government and to get the decentralization so they could run their education and get the funds to do it, so they could run their health and could they run their own government. And this we thought we could do in 10 years and we've been working on 30 years because setting up a government, as we all know, is very complicated. It's not just for the indigenous people, for all of us, governments are not easy to set up and to come to agreements. And of course, these are multi-ethnic governments. That is, we are setting up a lot of governments with different cultures. It's important to highlight here that normally an ethnic group there is about uh, 300, 400 people, they're small groups, and they have a system where 
what we call linguistic exogamy. That is that they have to marry with somebody of another ethnic group. They cannot marry within the ethnic group. And if I marry somebody's sister, that person will marry my sister or my cousin. So there's a bit like they used to do in, in, in Europe among, among the, 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 the kings. But here's everybody. You marry out and you exchange. And so this creates bonds. It's very important because they mean it, there's a link among all the ethnic groups, which is extraordinary that they managed to maintain their language, their identity different over the centuries, although they are so intermixed. So they are all mixed, but they keep their identity, they keep the language and they exchange, not only do they exchange from a marriage point of view, they exchange from ritual aspects and also to an extent and obviously they share their knowledge. So they have a network throughout the whole Amazon or throughout the Colombian Amazon and across the border to Brazil and Peru. There's a network of understanding and forms an enormous knowledge of the forest. And of course they have a profound knowledge of the forest. So after this, once this got going and we are still working on the governments, we move to the next step. What does it mean that they own the territory? It means that what the government recognized that this land has always been the Indian land that has never come out of their hands and it existed before the Colombian uh, nation was created. Therefore, it belongs to the Indians in an irreversible way. And uh, it cannot be taken away from them under any circumstances. That is what the constitution says. Now, of course, they own the soil and the forest. The subsoil remains to the state, and that's the weak point. Therefore, the state can allow mining. Now, that's one of our major threats, but to get to the mining, they have to go through the territory, and therefore they have to negotiate and ask for permission, and the law says that there has to be an agreement to go through. Now, that's a tricky one, because of course, companies coming in can try and buy out the leaders and uh, have influence. So I'm not saying this is perfect. I'm just saying this is a fundamental step that has been taken. But we do have to threat, particularly for mining. That is our major threat. Roughly 50% uh, is under some type of protection. That is about 26% is indigenous territories that have been recognized legally. And another 24% are protected areas. So we already have in the Amazon practically 50% that is under some kind of protection. Uh, nonetheless, there are threats. threats. We have deforestation, we have mining, we have roads. Now this deforestation, as you can see, we already have practically 17% to 18% of the Amazon deforested. Now, the problem there is being deforested by cattle ranching and by soya beans fundamentally is what we are deforesting, or we are, it's being deforested to produce that. But in the northern part of the Amazon is much better, better preserved than the southern and the eastern part, or western part, the southern part. It's much better. And this is the next initiative that we are pushing now. That is, we have, we're still working with the indigenous people, setting up their government, setting up their autonomy, uh, setting up their stability, financial stability. And that's coming along well in Colombia. And we can see that it's from the Andes right across to the Atlantic, there is, is practically all protected. It is 65% under protection. Of, that is of a protected area or of indigenous territories. 
Now, this area is particularly important because it is on the equator. It is on where you have the zones, the rainy zones from the north and the south uh, meeting. And therefore, you have a concentration of water. The point here is that we are pushing with this, pushing this idea we've called the path of the Anaconda. We've called it also the corridor Andes Amazonas Atlantico. And since it's already 65% done, and we only have at the foot of the mountains and in the center of it, you'll see in Roraima are the deforested angle, uh, places. We only have 20% deforested, which we have to restore. Now, this is an opportunity for the world to protect 30% of the rainforest. It is inviting the different eight countries to participate, to construct, that is to harvest what they have already done, because the countries that have protected the areas is the country that have brought out laws to, to, to respect the indigenous people's rights. And so it's bringing that together, harvesting it, and turning this into 30% of the, of, the, of, the, of the Amazon to be protected. And we do hope that in the next years, we will be able to achieve it because we know the need we have with climate change right now and the, 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 the danger we have of not having water and losing the rainforest. And so this is fundamental, the whole hydric system, the whole water system that the Amazon produces, and particularly in this area, where, as I say, we are on the equator and what we can call the climatic equator, where the different types of seasons meet with the water. So we always have, when you look up from space, you have the darkest clouds coming precisely over this area. Now, in this area, we have a large part, which is indigenous territories. And so I'd like just to mention a little bit why indigenous people are so important. Indigenous people are so important because they have a different understanding, a different way of, they have a different way of being a human being because there are different ways of being human beings. There are different ways of understanding nature. And for the indigenous people, we are nature. We are, they see the forest as a community, a community of subjects. They have a relationship. They will talk about the forest. They will, they will, they will talk about uh, people in the community, about their, 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 their family, about the in-laws. There's a, 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 a close relationship, a kinship relationship with the forest. And they have a, a holistic point of view, a, a systemic point of view, a shaman is trained. We are trained in rationality. They're trained in, and we become rational. And we, and we divide things in parts, and we see the forest as a collection of objects which we can exploit for our well-being. They see it as a community of subjects which are all interrelated, all interdependent. We are depending on that, and therefore we must take care of the forest if we want to survive. Our health as part of the forest depends on the general health of the forest. <clears throat> so they have a whole system of exchange and reciprocity through their meditation. And the shaman, as I say, is trained to see this from a systemic point of view, from a holistic point of view. And when he meditates at night and he sits with everybody, he talks first, they talk every evening, they sit down and talk. And already talking is a kind of meditation because they are relating, they're talking with the guardian spirits of the forest. Now, what does that mean? Well, the forest comes alive between six at night and 12 at night. That's when the animals come out hunting. That's when the forest is really alive. At midnight, the animals are hunted and they go back to their dens. And during the day, you see birds and monkeys, but in general, the, the animals are resting during the day. So it's when the animals are out that they say the spirits are out because they believe that the world we see and we live in 
is one we see immediately, but there is a world of spirits that really takes care of this world, and the shaman connects with that. Now, how does he connect? He meditates deeply. He is trained as a model, both of understanding the world, as I say, from a holistic point of view, everything is interdependent, and then through profound meditation, he goes beyond what we would call rationality, just beyond thinking, and connects, we could say, with the heart, with the guts, we could say, with a deeper level of meditation, and there he can look at the forest and he focuses on the forest and that will, it will somehow answer. He will feel a relationship that will tell him where it's possible to hunt, where it's possible to fish at that time of the year because they have all these seasons. They know exactly how the animals are, are reproducing, where they're living, what they're doing. They know which are the fruits at that moment. And so by meditating, he can tell the people hunt here, hunt there, hunt this much, don't hunt that much. Don't go beyond that. And then their rituals, their whole rituals every month, because during each season, and they have 20 seasons or more, depending on the, on, 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 on the, on the, on the fruits that, uh, the, 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 the fruits that are, are of the season, um, that when you have, let's say, the time of the pineapple or the time of, 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 of another fruit, whatever it is, chontaluro, I, I'm not clear the words in English, acai, the whole forest is imbued with that energy. So you have to send that energy back to the garden space and open for new energy. You have to purify, you have to clean everybody, both their bodies and the forest and their relationship and send the energy back to the forest for the next season to come in. So from one season to another, they always hold rituals, cleansing, they put on a diet for three or four days, and then they start again with the next one. So they're all the time relating and all their health system is preventive, is avoid, because they say the forest has an order and if we disorder it, if we accumulate energy in us, we'll get sick. If we're sick, if we're individualistic, we'll be sick. So they have a whole way of life in contrast to us. We tend to be individualistic. We tend to give the importance to the individual. It comes all the way from French Revolution and before. They give importance to the relationship. We are our relationship. How do we relate? That's the fundamental aspect. And that's what they are focused on as a community, as a community with the forest also. So as we are individualistic and, and we accumulate and we compete, they collaborate, they share their community and they give importance to relationships. So we have two different approaches. Now, I think this is particularly important because we are moving in many parts of the world towards their direction of the way they think, not because they think that way, but because we're moving in that sense, when we recognize the rights of nature. For instance, in Colombia, the law, the, the, the court had recognized the whole Colombian Amazon as a subject of rights. That means they are like people, they have rights. Nature has rights and we have to respect it. And then it will say, we have to respect our relationship with with the forest. But if these people are thinking in that way through thousands of years, as they've been on the planet, as long as we have, they have not got into science and technology, but they have a profound understanding of the forest, an intimate understanding. The shaman will say, I sit and I meditate and I look at the tree until I become the tree. No, that is, they have what I mean, that intimacy in the sense of becoming one based on diversity. Recognizing the full diversity of all the languages of the forest, of the way of life, and yet you become one in your spirit. You become one in the unity there. And it is in this sense that there is a profound knowledge 
and of course an understanding of the forest and they can obviously know all the birds and the trees and all that kind of thing. But it is in this profound knowledge, which I think that these people are not primitive. I think they're people of the future. I think they have something to show us and to inspire us that we can move in that direction. Because we've gone in the other direction where we see nature as objects and we've overexploited that. And that's why we are find ourselves in the difficulty we find ourselves. So I think it's very important, very important that we not only see the rights of indigenous people, but we give them full value. And we say, look, we have to sit on equal terms and listen to each other. And we have to build the future together. We cannot build the future based on the Western knowledge and the Western technology. The problem is not only technical, the problem is fundamentally ethical. Who are we? How do we relate? That's what we are confronted with. And these people have a profoundly ethical relationship with the environment because they are one with the environment. So I think that it is very important for us. And there are other 600 cultures out there different from ours. We should listen to this big diversity. We should build with them. We should not say, this is my opinion, but we, it doesn't make sense that we say, yes, but of course we are scientific and they work in mythology and rituals and, and that's a lot of rubbish. Let's not look at it that way. Let's look at a tree, let's look at a mountain. If we say that mountain is full of gold, we, knock, we cut it down to get money. If we say that mountain is sacred, we leave it there and we respect it. If we see a tree is just wood, we'll cut it down. If we see a tree is sacred, we'll look after it. The same goes with animals and everything. If we're going to preserve the forest and the planet, we have to say the planet is sacred in a way, in many ways. And so it's, 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 it's the impact of our cultures, which ultimately we should measure and not try and compare one way of thinking, which is rational to another way, which we might say is intuitive. They are both valid. And so we just have to respect Fundamentally, it's respect, respect for nature and respect for diversity and respect for other cultures and listen to them. And so I think that when we say, well, what can we do towards this? I think not only learn more about indigenous people, learn more about the forest, learn more about the forest as a, as a, as a, a holistic system. But let's say um, when we are looking at the United, at the, at, the, at the European Commission, making an enormous agreement after 10 years, a commercial agreement, with Mercosur, with the southern countries of America. We have to put pressure there. We have to look at it. Do they have enough environmental ecosystemic standards? Do they have a respect for indigenous people? We cannot limit ourselves to say just benefit sharing. I'm not saying that indigenous should not also share benefits in many ways, and also in financial access to our, our, our society, but respect their culture, their way of thinking, highlight that. So if the more we understand and the more we can look at the pressure we are putting from Europe or from the developed countries on the Amazon, it's something we should do and we should get involved in. Because ultimately, or not ultimately, directly even and indirectly, all this deforestation in the Amazon is produced soya, uh, cattle, and this is sold to Europe and to other countries. So we are responsible for this. So I think that that is where we have to understand this responsibility understand the indigenous people, understand what's happening in the, in the forest, and of course, what's happening in Congo, and what's happening in Indonesia, and see to what extent can we influence our governments or the decision makers to be sure that we are not simply looking at getting, buying cheaper and a commercial angle, but that we are actually respecting the forest and the people that live in the forest. 
such a beautiful message and it's a profound one and it really makes us reevaluate what you know as you say it's a a paradigm shift and i feel that uh, as you rightly pointed out young people see that we have to make the, this paradigm shift mm-hmm. that's the kind of respect of feeling at one with nature not one of dominance or not trying to control mm-hmm. when we work with nature when we understand what indigenous peoples have always known and and lived if, if they're mm-hmm. left to live as they always have they are not more important than nature it's not there for their submission a huge family yeah. and we're all part of it and many people say so, and it's true, that nature existed before people, yes. And that neighbor, nature can survive without people and perhaps even do better, that's true. And some, some people come up and say, well, yes, it'd be actually better for nature not to have human beings at all. Uh, and perhaps we don't have human beings. Now, I don't fully agree with that for several reasons. I mean, obviously we wouldn't know much about nature if we weren't around and we wouldn't be able to think about these things, fair enough. But I see it also from another angle and and a bit from what you might also think from an aesthetic point of view. Uh, That is that we have the evolution, which was galactic or is galactic in every stone and in every planet. We have then a second part which is biological with all the plants and animals. And we have a third step, which is cultural, which is understanding human beings. And I think that this forms a complete picture. And perhaps there's still more, but the whole idea of evolution is that it moved from one to the other in its greatness, in the fantastic miracle of evolution. And on planet Earth, it created not only life, but it created consciousness, a particular type of consciousness. And what we would call, it created culture in that sense, it created a particular way of understanding. If we took that off, we're losing part of the art. We're losing part of the question is that we cannot lose. We have no right to lose the human being and human consciousness on planet. We cannot do it. It is part of evolution. We have a responsibility to do the right thing, to live the right way, to understand all the parts. But we cannot say it was better if if we didn't have one part. Because it is much, it's a holistic approach. It's an aesthetic approach. It's a a sensory living approach of the universe. We have a responsibility towards the universe to participate and to do our best that this works and works properly. And and, And that cultures work properly and that consciousness works properly and that consciousness was created to to contribute to the biological and to the galactic. And we now cannot wash our hands in the responsibility and say, well, it's better if we weren't around. No, we are for a reason. We must understand and try and understand that the Western world made a mistake. Okay, well, we have to correct it before we go down the drain. But yes, we made a mistake. Other cultures haven't. And again, when they say, yes, it's that humans are terrible. Wait a moment, humans aren't terrible. We are terrible, the Western world. But other humans and other cultures are not terrible. They have lived with the forest. They have lived with the environment. We cannot generalize. We tend to talk about, in the same way as we say man, and generalize and from masculine, not a feminine, we also say humans, as if all the different cultures were. We speak for all of them. We can't speak for all of them. We have made mistakes. We have to correct them. We have to listen to other cultures. We have to see other ways people are. There are other ways of being a human being. And we don't have the best. So let's try and understand. 
No, so that's why I think that it's not fair to say that the world without humans will be a better world. I I wouldn't no. I would never uh, say that, but we certainly have made a mess in a lot of places where we've gone. And another thing that is was curious to me as well as you have you're this international figure, and you also have this Irish connection that I do as well. And uh, mm -hmm. to tell us a little bit about that, because in a way, you've kind of uh, continued a, a tradition of uh, defending indigenous people's mm -hmm. rights. Uh, we were talking there before about Roger Casement. Yes. Okay, I'll tell you a little bit about that. And that is, of course, in my background, I have two aspects, the German and the Irish. First, I mentioned the German already back in the 19th century, in the 1948 revolution, my good, good, good grandfather, whatever it was, was very liberal and they lost and he was condemned to death. So I was the first one, the family condemned to death, but he managed to escape. And then my grandfather, the German one, who stood up already in 1923 against the Nazis, was also condemned to death in 36, and so was my father. So I have a background on the German side of people being condemned to death for fighting for what I believe the right reason, that is for, for people's rights and against fascism, fundamentally against fascism and against. And then on the Irish side, my grandfather, my mother's father, well, he was involved with, uh, with uh, Sinn Féin, and he was also spent uh, twice in jail for a year and got out to hunger strikes like so many. And uh, so there was we're a big family, nine brothers and sisters. And um, I can't say my parents spoke about this all the time, but it was there in the air. And then when I studied in Ireland. And so I think I have in my cultural DNA or my psychological DNA, whatever it is, a sort of fight for the freedom, fight for the underdog. I think the Irish energy and that background committed me, I didn't just go and study and write a doctorate and, and get into the academy, I got involved, I, 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 it really hurt me. And I, and I, I was shocked and, I, and I, I felt I had to do something and it just grabbed me, I mean, I've been there all my life. And then seven years ago, years ago, I, I, I was thinking of closing the, closing the foundation and my son Francisco, the second one, he said, look, daddy, let me have a go at it. I said, okay. And actually, he's done an excellent job. I gave him a foundation at that stage with 25 people. He has now 140 people, and he's all over the Amazon, and he's doing extremely well. Anyway, but coming back to Roger Casement, as we all know the story of Roger Casement, or we don't, I mean, he, he, he was, he went to Congo, and he stood up for, against, against the Belgians, and against uh, the king of Belgium, uh, for the, because there were slaves in the Congo. And he denounced that. And the English were very pleased in denouncing that because, of course, then they could also economically fight with the, or have a, a point up under Belgium and, and, and the king of Belgium. And anyway, he was successful in that. And because of that, they appointed him Sir Roger Casement and they sent him to Brazil. And in Brazil, there was this large company called La Casarana, which was Peruvian, but with money uh, registered in, in London and with uh, uh, British money. And he was sent in to see what was happening because it was known that something was happening there that terrible, that they were uh, treating cruel, cruelty to the indigenous people and, 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 and cruelty to, to people that brought from Barbados who were British citizens. And he wrote a report, very strong report, which actually made that the English pull out of the area because they were murdering the indigenous people, they were killing them, they were torturing them to get rubber. 
and it actually wiped out 90% of the population of the indigenous people. And um, Rosa Kaifman, when he was there, being Irish, he said, it was being here among the Indians that I realized that we Irish people are the Indians of Europe. They were still colonized by the British. And so he went back and he joined the, the independence of Ireland, the fight, fight for freedom of Ireland. And uh, the British caught him and they hanged him because they called it, it was treason. And I just say that the story was makes this little story nice in a but I mean, story. One of the aspects of the story is that when he was in, came back to Europe and he started going to Ireland and he got involved in Ireland and he went to Sligo to the, to, 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 to the festivities, the traditional festivities that were celebrating in Ireland, which had been organized by my grandmother particularly, but also my grandfather. And this I don't know, but I do believe that he probably met in the pub with and had a chat with my grandfather and my grandmother and spoke about the Indians. And he did say, because the world was divided in two by the colonialists and the colonized, the Irish were the colonized and the English the colonialists. So he said one day an Irish man has to go there and help them get their land back. So he managed to stop the exploitation as an Irishman, identifying with the exploitation the Irish had. And it so happened that probably the guy who was talking with his grandson would be the one that would go and get the land back and help the Indians set up their governments. So there's an Irish connection there, which makes a nice story. And, um, and I have received the Irish Presidential Award for Irish Abroad. So I have a strong connection from many angles with, with Ireland and I feel the Irish energy very strong in me. It's something, I don't know, I identify with Ireland, yes. And with their sense of freedom and independence. And, and now with the problem with the Brexit, we see what happens with the border. All these things keep on coming up. But um, yes, so there is strong Irish feeling there. Well, it's definitely that feeling for, uh, I don't want to say underdog or, you know, just this kind of mm -hmm. like the yeah. independent spirit, yes. Yeah. Freedom, independence, the right to be yourself. I mean, that's what the Sinn Féin means. We can do it on our own, basically. We yeah. can do it. And my mother would tell me when I was here supporting the Indians and, uh, and she would say, Martin, you're a real Sinn Féin man. And that's fighting for the right of people to be themselves and they can do it without other people running them. No? Sure, Sinn Féin has gone from being you know, outside of government to being, you know, just a, a government or a, a party like any other. And so it yeah. is important. It's all about asserting the rights to the land. And I guess just in closing, uh, it's you know, wonderful life's work that you ha have done. And now you've, you've, get, you've passed that on to your children too. Mm. So it's beauty, beautiful to see that continuation. And in closing, mm. as you reflect on uh, the future and indigenous culture, uh, how we can be uh, you know, adapting to this paradigm shift, as you say, mm. that to work with greater harmony with nature, you know, what are some lessons that have been important to you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, I think that the young people should not only try and understand indigenous cultures, and also what they're already doing, question their own, uh, to our economic model to begin with, of exploitation. Uh, and when I'm talking, I'm not only talking from a purely financial point of view, and exploitation of natural resources, but also that we compete with each other, each other with each other instead of collaborating. 
thinking out of the individual right that my rights stop where your rights begin. That's not what's important is that you and me, we make rights together. It's our relationship. We build together and we have to build together. It's not the survival of the fittest. It's the living in a group that makes us go ahead. And I think that looking at the relationship between people and, and the relationship with nature, how do I relate and what am I building in this relationship? That is what really counts. And I'd say you have, so much, you have rights there and I have rights here and we sort of stand and really sort of uh, confront each other in a way, instead of saying, no, let's live together on this planet, no? I think that's important. I think another thing that's very important is to try and understand that we are a culture and a culture fundamentally colonialist. We have always imposed on others, be it the name of Christ or be it the name of Marx or be it the name of money or be it the name even of environment. But it's our agenda. And we say, you have to take care of the forest or you have to do this and that, the other, or we're going to help you and we take money and we ruin them. What was done in Africa, for instance, with the collaboration or with the, with the cooperation or whatever, with the Green Miracle and all that kind of stuff. No, sit down, listen to people. Uh, understand that people have profound ideas, that they might even know more about this than we do. Learn from the people. More than study, learn. Uh, sit down, listen. And I think that's fundamental. And look at our culture and say, wait a moment. This program we have here, is it, is it imposed? Are we just interested in the economic angle? Are we understand that there are other people that live there? When we talk about benefit sharing, which we all say, are we there's inequity and we have to also find money for the poor. Wait a moment. The poor are more than poor. And many times they're poor because we made them poor. When they were before with their land, with their agriculture, they lived quite happily. And, they, and, they, and, and, and there was equality. And we went in to help them. And so we took out the family, some of them, and we started putting in machines and money. And, then, and we destroyed their culture. We destroyed their society. And that's why they became poor. We made them poor. But they're not poor in May. They don't have money. Perhaps they have difficulties, and we call them poor. And so we look at them as poor. No, we have to look at them as people. People with thoughts, people with a culture, people with an understanding, people that are profoundly human and that have needs, undoubtedly. And sometimes the needs are very, very complicated. Yes. But get out of our Western economic approach and get into a more cultural, into a more human approach, into our relationship approach. Think with our heart and not only with our brain. I think this is fundamental. We have to make this change, keep an eye on our culture. Sometimes we're going to say, we're going to help them. Wait a moment, what do you mean going to help them? Are we really going to help them? Or are we going to exploit them? Are we going to, what are we going to do? Whose is the agenda? Have they really participated? Have they decided? Are they inviting us? So I think it's thinking more in depth. Who are we? What have we done? Look in our society. Why do we have wars? What have we done with the Middle East? We made it a mess. Who did it? did it. Before we got in there, the Western world wasn't such a mess among all the Arab countries. What do we do with Africa? We divided it in an absurd way. And we exploited it. So let's become aware of what we have done. And the first thing we have to learn is to listen, to sit down, to see them as equal, that we're all equal. And iniquity is not a question of money, questions of respect, of understanding, and of course, of sharing. We all have a right and a need to eat. Yes and to sleep and have shelter, of course. There's no question about that. But the approach, we're not going out to help people. 
on the contrary, we're going to have to sit down and listen to them and recognize that our we didn't, but our previous generations made a mistake. I, I would say that's the, that's a fundamental thing, you know, becoming aware and 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 and, and acting consciously in, in, in that sense, you no. Know? I think that that's, you know, a, a very profound message and for us to just really take a moment to absorb that, what that means. Yes, we are and have been a colonial uh, societies and to then approach areas. Um, it's really such a profound message uh, and just to accept that we have been uh, colonial societies and to accept with humility that uh, really how we can work uh, just with great, a greater sense of equality with uh, mm. different groups of people with nature uh, and a position of equality. So thank you, uh, Martin von Hildebrand and Fundacion Gaia Amazonas and the Coama program for all you have done for Colombia, the Amazon, to share and protect the indigenous way of life. Thank you for helping us understand that we are part of nature. We don't own it. We are all connected. We appreciate you sharing the indigenous worldview. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your commitment to make it a better place for future generations. Thank you very much, uh, Mia, and thank also Mariana for this space and this opportunity and for the great pleasure of meeting you both. Bueno, para empezar, ¿cómo te identificas? Mira, yo, yo soy una persona, pues yo soy un antropólogo. No sé si me identifico así. Eh, yo me identifico como una persona que ha pasado 50 años con los pueblos indígenas en el Amazonas, acompañándolos a que se les reconozcan sus derechos y a implementar sus derechos, a que sean unos pueblos eh, autónomos con el pleno derecho de ser diferentes, de continuar siendo ellos mismos, no solo porque es un derecho fundamental que todos tenemos, de ser uno, uno mismo y ser considerado y respetado como tal, sino también porque he aprendido que tiene un profundo pensamiento, que es importantísimo para el planeta, y que no son gente del pasado, sino gente del futuro, con su visión de que somos todos naturaleza. Eh, y luego, pues eh, sí, soy europeo, nacionalizado en Colombia. ¿Y ¿Cómo dirías fue tu experiencia en la selva amazónica? Entré a los 28 años al Amazonas por interés, de pueblos indígenas y por aventura porque atravesé durante seis meses en una canoa del Amazonas, pasando por diferentes pueblos indígenas, y pues allá no había nada del mundo occidental. No vi una persona occidental, por poner sus términos, durante mucho tiempo. Eh, obviamente que no hay carreteras, no hay luz eléctrica, no hay... viven en su tradición, en su forma de siempre, eh, que siempre han vivido. Esa fue una experiencia fundamental porque me alejé del mundo y comencé a vivir otra forma, otro mundo. Es que es tan importante salirse por un tiempo al occidente y vivir en otro espacio para uno aprender y entender que hay otras formas de ser un ser humano, hay otras formas de vivir. Y cuando uno vuelve a la cultura de uno, uno tiene como una capacidad de dar un paso atrás y mirar su mundo de otra manera. Y en la mitad del camino... Eh, encontré que estaban siendo explotados por, la, por los caucheros, por la explotación del caucho, y los misioneros cristianos, católicos y otros, 
llevaban los niños a la fuerza a enseñarles que no fueran indígenas, a negar su cultura durante seis años, a desadaptarlos de sus propias familias. Entonces decidí ayudarlos un poquito, a ver qué podía hacer yo, sentarme, hablar con ellos, a ver qué podíamos hacer juntos. En mi primer viaje tomé esa decisión. Y yo iba a estudiar, sí, o aprender, porque prefiero decir que aprendí de los indígenas, más decir que los estudié, aprendí compartiendo, viviendo. Pero esos dos años se me volvieron 50. Luchamos por la tierra. Ellos al principio decían que la tierra no era de ellos, sino de la naturaleza, de los pájaros, los animales. Yo insistí que necesitábamos un papel diciendo que era de ellos. Me dijeron, Martín, vaya y busque el papel. Y lo busqué por 20 millones de hectáreas, es decir, por un área del tamaño de la Gran Bretaña. Lo logramos. Y logramos con los años también aquello de manejar la educación y ya lo manejaban los misioneros. Y logramos a que ellos desarrollaran su, su, sus, sus derechos y fueran reconocidos en la constitución colombiana. ¿Qué era nuestro objetivo? Y hoy en día seguimos acompañándolos en montar gobiernos, porque gobiernos, como sabemos en todas partes del mundo, son difíciles. Y toma tiempo, y hay que pensar mucho. Y, en fin, sobre todo porque no, ellos tenían su gobierno tradicional, el gobierno indígena, claro. Funcionaba miles de años. Pero cuando viene el impacto del occidente, que viene con su economía, que viene con su democracia, que viene con otros valores que confunden, porque ellos están al margen de todo esto, pero están influenciados, son impuestos además estas ideas, son colonialistas. Salir de 300 años de colonialismo y montar su propio gobierno entre mucha diversidad cultural que hay allá, pues toma tiempo, pero van muy bien, están avanzando muchísimo, pero no ha sido fácil. Eso ha sido mi vida con ellos, sigue siendo, logramos conseguir 26 millones de hectáreas de territorio indígena. Ahora estamos impulsando una gran iniciativa Andes-Amazonas-Atlántico eh, para conservar y proteger 260 millones de hectáreas en el norte de la Amazonía, que yo después le mando unos links para que puedan mirar en más detalle esto. Pero eso es entre ocho países que también han reconocido los derechos indígenas, que también han reconocido los territorios indígenas, que han hecho áreas protegidas o parques, y que sumando todo es muy viable lograr eso. Y de eso depende el agua, porque los árboles producen agua, producen nubes, y esas nubes traen el agua a los Andes. Y lo llamamos los ríos voladores, también eso lo pueden encontrar y pueden mirar más a fondo eso. Pero es fundamental, porque si no tenemos selva, no habrá nubes, no habrá agua y se nos seca el, el, toda la parte andina, las ciudades y todo, no habrá agricultura. Entonces, preservar la selva es fundamental y si alguien se lo sabe preservar con una visión profunda, son los indígenas. Todos los indígenas son una necesidad, los necesitamos. Y su visión de que la naturaleza no es una colección de objetos que podemos explotar, extraer, sino una colección, una comunidad, una comunidad de sujetos a la cual pertenecemos. Ese cambio de paradigma, esa visión de que somos naturaleza y parte de una gran comunidad es esencial y eso lo tienen los indígenas. Entonces tenemos mucho que inspirarnos y aprender de ellos. De modo que no son gente del pasado, son gente del futuro, gente necesaria, gente que necesitamos. No son los pobres indios que hay que darles una plática porque pobrecitos, no. Pobrecitos nosotros que nos equivocamos y estamos destruyendo el planeta. No ellos. Ellos lo saben manejar. Ellos tienen identidad. 
tiene espiritualidad, tiene fortaleza. ¿Que necesitan cosas los blancos hoy en día? Sí, claro. Porque nosotros hemos llegado ya con nuestras enfermedades, entonces necesitan medicamentos. Hemos llegado con algunos objetos y obviamente es más eficiente un H metal que un H piedra. Claro, no estamos excluyendo. Pero no, tenemos que valorar su visión, su cultura y entender que son necesarios. Claro, es muy importante el trabajo, lo que he estado haciendo y mucha gente te agradece por todo el trabajo que has hecho, de verdad que es algo súper importante y como sabes, las generaciones más jóvenes estamos aprendiendo de gente como usted, de la gente que ha luchado para la gente que no tiene su voz, ¿no es cierto?, en, el, en los gobiernos, en, claro. en esas posiciones de poder. Muchas gracias. ¿Y qué piensas que... Nosotros, como eh, gente que no es indígena, podemos hacer para apoyar esta lucha, para apoyar a estas comunidades indígenas y para protegerlos. Mira, yo te voy a decir una frase que, 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 que hemos dicho desde hace muchos años, y que es un poquito directa. El problema indígena es blanco. El problema somos nosotros, no ellos. Y toda la ayuda que hemos dado siempre la damos en nombre de, de ayudar. Vamos a llevarle la palabra de Dios. Vamos a llevarle la solución marxista. Vamos a llevarle la solución capitalista. Los vamos a volver empresarios. Los vamos a meter en nuestro modelo. Vamos inclusive a volverlos protectores de la selva que siempre han sido, pero ahora los vamos a ver guardianes. Y en el proceso estamos llevando nuestra agenda. No es la de ellos. No los estamos escuchando. En ese sentido somos colonialistas. Hasta somos colonialistas en nuestra propia cultura. A través del comercio hemos colonizado a todo el mundo y los tenemos trabajando en la fábrica o comprando cosas. Que también es un sistema de colonialismo interno. Entonces tenemos que reflexionar sobre eso. Tenemos que aprender a escuchar al otro. Los indígenas creen en la comunidad, en la colaboración, en las relaciones. No son... Tú, cuando hicimos los derechos, inclusive, yo digo, tú tienes derechos, yo tengo derechos, y mis derechos terminan cuando los tuyos comienzan. Eso está equivocado. Para mí, está equivocado. Es la relación que construimos en los dos para hacer un mundo mejor. Lo que vale es nuestra relación entre las partes. Y los indígenas lo ven así. Y los derechos deben enfocarse más en las relaciones y en lo comunitario y menos en, las, en el individualismo como parte, sino en el conjunto. Entonces, yo creo que tenemos que mirar nosotros cuando caminamos hacia buscar soluciones para el planeta. Que nuestras soluciones tengan unos valores de, 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 de solidaridad, de relaciones, de construcción conjunta. Y no una visión de competencia, de acumulación y de individualismo. Entonces, y de ver la naturaleza como una gran comunidad a la cual pertenecemos y si la naturaleza no está bien, nosotros tampoco. Porque somos todo una gran comunidad diversa, sí, pero es la unidad en la diversidad. Pero no perder que pensar que vamos a resolverlo únicamente con tecnología del occidente. Porque el problema no es únicamente técnico, es ético. ¿Quiénes somos? ¿Cómo nos relacionamos? ¿Cómo construimos conjuntamente? Entonces yo creo que lo que tenemos que hacer es tomar conciencia de quiénes somos, cómo hemos operado. ¿Qué clase de gobiernos montamos? ¿Qué clase de economía tenemos? Tenemos que intervenir políticamente. 
para hacer los cambios fundamentales, para que seamos un grupo humano aceptable para el planeta y para las demás culturas. Hay 700 culturas allá afuera diferentes a nosotros y nosotros queremos resolver esto. Queremos decir que la selva se va a salvar poniendo un precio en los árboles parados, metiendo al mercado, si el mercado fue lo que lo acabó. ¿Y ahora vamos a resolver todo con el mercado? O por lo menos cambiar el mercado. Pero no, no este sistema competitivo e individualista. Entonces, yo creo que reflexionando, si tú miras África, África es un desorden por el colonialismo europeo. Si tú miras el Medio Oriente, es un desorden por el colonialismo europeo y luego el americano. Entonces, pensemos quiénes somos, qué hemos hecho. Si nosotros decimos vamos a ayudar, un momento, nos invitaron. ¿Podemos ayudar? ¿Ya los escuchamos? ¿Qué piensan ellos? ¿Cómo están ellos? Claro que hay, hay necesidades, entre, y necesidades muy complejas, de, de, llamémoslo de pobreza, pero no miremos al otro como pobre, miremos como un ser humano con pensamiento y con el cual vamos a hablar, que tienen unas necesidades extremas quizá, y tenemos que resolverlo, ¿sí? O ayudarle a resolverlo, escuchándolo. Yo creo que tenemos que cambiar nuestra forma de pensar, y no pensar que es que, ay, pobrecitos allá, qué inequidad, vamos a incluirlos mandándoles plata. Es que eso no es. Es sentarnos, es escuchar, es construir conjuntamente. Es, es decir, de pronto ellos tienen algo en el pensamiento que nosotros no tenemos y que es fundamental para nuestro futuro. Ahí puede haber, en ese pobre que llamamos, puede haber unos puntos fundamentales para encontrar camino nosotros también. Entonces, escuchemos, vivamos, sentémonos participemos, no nos impongamos, escuchemos la agenda de todos, respetemos agendas, respetemos la agenda de otras culturas, todos tienen derecho a su tierra, todos tienen derecho a comer, a, 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 a dormir, es decir, a tener un techo, etcétera, sí, respetémonos, y no nos volvamos unos objetos, decimos recursos humanos como unos objetos, recursos naturales como unos objetos, no, son todos sujetos. Y entre sujetos nos tenemos que entender. Entonces, yo creo que ahí es tomar conciencia del occidente. Yo también tomaría consciente un poquito la historia del planeta, y me refiero a decirlo en términos de que la evolución ha sido galáctica, biológica y cultural. Si nosotros existimos en el planeta es porque tenemos una razón de ser dentro de la evolución. Comprendamos cuál es la razón de ser. Celebrar la vida, colaborar, colaborar con lo biológico, Ayudar a que el planeta sea un mejor planeta al sistema de vida, tenemos un papel que cumplir si venimos dentro de este proceso. Como lo cumplen los animales, la biología, y como, como lo cumplen los galácticos, las estrellas, el sol, la luz, todo. Tenemos una función. No somos dueños de nada. Somos parte de un proceso que viene desde el comienzo del, planeta, de, de la, de, de, del universo. Tenemos una razón de ser. Busquemos, tratemos de entender, escuchemos, compartamos. Unamos, tengamos intimidad con la naturaleza, con la selva, tengamos acercamientos, intimidad, volvamos de corazón uno con la naturaleza. Y vivamos juntos, construyamos juntos. Yo creo que es por ahí, tomar conciencia. No es una cuestión de salir, claro que es hacer acción, pero acción tratando de elegir a qué es, tratando de participar en la toma de decisiones, tratando de influir. Decía hace un, un momento, ahorita la Unión Europea está haciendo un acuerdo, la Comisión Europea haciendo un acuerdo del, eh, de Mercosur con los países del sur. Ecuador, um, Argentina, Uruguay, uh, Brasil, 
comercial. Pero es que en Europa la deforestación en Brasil se hace porque, por, por, por sacar soya y sacar ganado. Que lo consumimos en Europa o lo consumimos en Estados Unidos. Somos responsables. No podemos montar un acuerdo comercial que no tenga unas garantías ambientales, respeto cultural <coughs> y escuchar profundamente a los indígenas y a los, y a los habitantes locales cuál es su vida, cuál es su visión y cómo quieren vivir. Y no decir, ah, no, pero es que les vamos a dar plata. ¿Y entonces qué? ¿Entonces los volvemos asalariados? Pues si no querían ser asalariados, si querían vivir de su manera, escuchémoslos. Entonces ahí podemos montar presión sobre, la, sobre Mercosur y ya han 10 años negociando y ahora Irlanda y no sé si otros países también, Francia tal vez, dieron par. Porque si hacemos el acuerdo como está, vamos a promover la deforestación y a desconocer los derechos indígenas. Entonces, ahí también miremos a ver cuál es, cómo es que se está comportando nuestro mundo hacia afuera, nuestro gobierno, nuestras empresas. Y decir, oiga, un momento, no. Ustedes están explotando a la demás gente. Y están explotando la naturaleza. Y así no va a funcionar. Ya sabemos que no funciona. Mire dónde estamos. En fin, Mariana, ahí podríamos seguir hablando. Bueno, muchas gracias por su mensaje, por su trabajo, por la lucha que está haciendo. Los apoyamos. Eh, y queremos agradecerte mucho por agregar tu voz a One Planet Podcast. Muchas, muchas gracias. Gracias a usted, Mariana. Un placer conocerla. Igualmente. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer and on this podcast was Mariana Monahan Negron. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.